Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with the second chapter of The Wretched of the Earth. The last episode laid some groundwork on what it looks like for a colonial rebellion, where it starts, who is involved, who is in charge, and what do they know and what do they understand of each other. It outlined a kind of division where the vast majority of the people, referred to as the lumpen proletariat, were kept at arm's length from people in cities who were somewhat educated but could not relate to the lumpen proletariat, even though the lumpen proletariat was the vast majority of the population and the rebellion itself, and obviously key to any successful rebellion. And today's reading is going to dig into that a little bit deeper and some of the tensions between those groups. So, let's get started. This unhealthy state of affairs simply shows the objective necessity of a social program which will appeal to the nation as a whole. Suddenly, the unions discover that the backcountry too ought to be enlightened and organized. But since at no time have they taken care to establish working links between themselves and the mass of the peasants, and since this peasantry precisely constitutes the only spontaneously revolutionary force of the country, the trade unions will give proof of their inefficiency and find out for themselves the anachronistic nature of their programs. The trade union leaders, steeped in working-class political action, automatically go from there to the preparation of a coup d'etat. But here again, the back country is left out. This is a limited settling of accounts only, between the national class and the union workers. The national middle class, taking up the old traditions of colonialism, makes a show of its military and police forces, while the unions organize mass meetings and mobilize tens of thousands of members. The peasants confronted with this national middle class and these workers, who after all can eat their fill, look on, shrugging their shoulders, and they shrug their shoulders because they know very well that both sides look on them as a make-weight. The unions, the parties, or the government in a kind of immoral Machiavellian fashion all make use of the peasant masses as a blind, inert, tactical force. Brute force, as it were. On the other hand, in certain circumstances, the country people are going to intervene in decisive fashion both in the struggle for national freedom and in the way that the future nation marks out for itself. This phenomenon takes on a fundamental importance for underdeveloped countries. This is why we propose to study it in detail. We have seen that inside the nationalist parties, the will to break colonialism is linked with another quite different will, that of coming to a friendly agreement with it. Within these parties, the two processes will sometimes continue side by side. In the first place, when the intellectual elements have carried out a prolonged analysis of the true nature of colonialism and of the international situation, they will begin to criticize their party's lack of ideology and the poverty of its tactics and strategy. They begin to question their leaders ceaselessly on crucial points. What is nationalism? What sense do you give to this word? What is its meaning? Independence for what? And in the first place, how do you propose to achieve it? They ask these questions and at the same time require that the problems of methodology should be vigorously tackled. They are ready to suggest that electoral resources should be supplemented by all other means. 
After the first skirmishes, the official leaders speedily dispose of this effervescence, which they are quick to label as childishness. But since these demands are not simply effervescence, nor the sign of immaturity, the revolutionary elements which subscribe to them will rapidly be isolated. The official leaders, draped in their years of experience, will pitilessly disown these adventurers and anarchists. The party machine shows itself opposed to any innovation. The revolutionary minority finds itself alone, confronted with leaders who are terrified and worried by the idea that they could be swept away by a maelstrom whose nature, force, or direction they cannot even imagine. The second process concerns the main leaders, or their seconds in command, who were marked out for police repression under the colonialists. It must be emphasized that these men have come to the head of the party by their untiring work, their spirit of sacrifice, and a most exemplary patriotism. Such men, who have worked their way up from the bottom, are often unskilled workers, seasonal laborers, or even sometimes chronically unemployed. For them, the fact of militating in a national party is not simply taking part in politics. It is choosing the only means whereby they can pass from the status of an animal to that of a human being. Such men, hampered by the excessive legalism of the party, will show within the limits of the activities for which they are responsible a spirit of initiative, courage, and a sense of the importance of the struggle which mark them out almost automatically as targets for colonialist repression. Arrested, condemned, tortured, finally amnestied, they use their time in prison to clarify their ideas and strengthen their determination. Through hunger strikes and the violent brotherhood of the prison's quicklime they live on, hoping for their freedom, looking on it as an opportunity to start an armed struggle. But at one and the same time, outside the prison walls, colonialism, attacked from all sides, is making advances to the nationalist moderates. So we can observe the process whereby the rupture occurs between the illegal and legal tendencies in the party. The illegal minority is made to feel that they are undesirables and are shunned by the people that matter. The legal members of their party come to their aid with great precaution, but already there is a rift between the two tendencies. The illegalists, therefore, will get into touch with the intellectual elements whose attitude they were able to understand a few years back, and an underground party, an offshoot of the legal party, will be the result of this meeting. But the repression of these wayward elements intensifies as the legal party draws nearer to colonialism and attempts to modify it from the inside. The illegal minority thus finds itself in a historical blind alley. Boycotted by the towns, these men first settle in the outskirts of the suburbs. But the police network traps them and forces them to leave the towns for good and to quit the scenes of political action. They fall back toward the countryside and the mountains, toward the peasant people. From the beginning, the peasantry closes in around them and protects them from being pursued by the police. The militant nationalist who decides to throw in his lot with the country people instead of playing at hide-and-seek with the police in urban centers will lose nothing. The peasant's cloak will wrap him around with a gentleness and firmness that he never suspected. 
These men, who are in fact exiled to the backwoods, who are cut off from the urban background against which they had defined their ideas of the nation and of the political fight, these men have in fact become Machizards. Since they are obliged to move about the whole time in order to escape from the police, often at night, so as not to attract attention, they will have good reason to wander through their country and to get to know it. The cafes are forgotten. So are the arguments about the next elections, or the spitefulness of some policeman or other. Their ears hear the true voice of the country, and their eyes take in the great and infinite poverty of their people. They realize the precious time that has been wasted in useless commentaries upon the colonial regime. They finally come to understand that the changeover will not be a reform, nor a bettering of things. They come to understand, with a sort of bewilderment, that will from henceforth never quite leave them, that political action in the towns will always be powerless to modify or overthrow the colonial regime. These men get used to talking to the peasants. They discover that the mass of the country people have never ceased to think of the problem of their liberation except in terms of violence, in terms of taking back the land from the foreigners, in terms of national struggle and of armed insurrection. It is all very simple. These men discover a coherent people who go on living, as it were, statically, but who keep their moral values and their devotion to the nation intact. They discover a people that is generous, ready to sacrifice themselves completely. An impatient people, with a stony pride. It is understandable that the meeting between these militants with the police on their track and these meddlesome masses of people, who are rebels by instinct, can produce an explosive mixture of unusual potentiality. The men coming from the towns learn their lessons in hard school of the people, and at the same time, these men open classes for the people in military and political education. The people furbish up their weapons, but in fact, the classes do not last long, for the masses come to know once again the strength of their own muscles, and push the leaders on to prompt action. The armed struggle has begun. The rising disconcerts the political parties. Their doctrine, in fact, has always affirmed the uselessness of a trial by force, and their very existence is a constant condemnation of all rebellion. Secretly, certain political parties share the optimism of the settlers, and congratulate themselves on being well away from this act of madness, which, it said, will be put down with bloodshed. But once the match is lit, the blaze spreads like wildfire through the whole country. The armoured cars and the airplanes do not win through with unqualified success. Faced with the full extent of the trouble, colonialism begins to reflect on the matter. At the very core of the oppressing nation, voices are raised, and listened to, which draw attention to the gravity of the situation. As for the people, they join in the new rhythm of the nation in their mud huts and in their dreams. Under their breath and from their heart's core, they sing endless songs of praise to the glorious fighters. The tide of rebellion has already flooded the whole nation. Now it is the party's turn to be isolated. The leaders of the Rising, however, realize that someday or another, the rebellion must come to include the towns. This awareness is not fortuitous. It is the crowning point of the dialectic which reigns over the development of an armed struggle for national liberation. 
Although the country districts represent inexhaustible reserves of popular energy, and groups of armed men ensure that insecurity is rife there, colonialism does not doubt the strength of its system. It does not feel that it is endangered fundamentally. The rebel leaders therefore decide to bring the war into the enemy's camp, that is to say, into his grandiose, peaceful cities. The organizing of the rising in the centers of population sets the leaders some difficult problems. We have seen that the greater part of the leaders, born or brought up in the towns, have fled from their normal background because they were wanted by the colonialist police, and were, in general, unappreciated by the cautious, reasonable administrators of the political parties. Their retreat into the country was both a flight from persecution and a sign of their distrust for the old political structure. The natural receiving stations in the towns for these leaders are well-known nationalists who are in the thick of the political parties, but we have seen that their recent history was precisely an offshoot from these timid, nervous officials who spend their time in ceaseless lamentation over the misdeeds of colonialism. Moreover, the first overtures which the men of the Maquis make toward their former friends, precisely those whom they consider to be the most toward the left, will confirm their fears, and will take away even the wish to see their old companions again. In fact, the rebellion, which began in the country districts, will filter into the towns, through that fraction of the peasant population which is blocked on the outer fringe of the urban centres. That fraction which has not yet succeeded in finding a bone to gnaw in the colonial system. The men whom the growing population of the country districts and colonial expropriation have brought to desert their family holdings circle tirelessly around the different towns, hoping that one day or another they will be allowed inside. It is within this mass of humanity, this people of the shanty towns, at the core of the lumpen proletariat, that the rebellion will find its urban spearhead. For the lumpen proletariat, that horde of starving men, uprooted from their tribe and from their clan, constitutes one of the most spontaneous and the most radically revolutionary forces of a colonized people. In Kenya, in the years preceding the Mau Mau Revolt, it was noticeable how the British colonial authorities multiplied intimidatory measures against the lumpen proletariat. The police forces and the missionaries coordinated their efforts, in the years 1950-51, to 51, in order to make a suitable response to the enormous influx of young Kenyans coming from the country districts and the forests, who, when they did not manage to find a market for their labour, took to stealing, debauchery, and alcoholism. Juvenile delinquency in the colonialized countries is the direct result of the existence of a lumpen proletariat. In parallel fashion, in the Congo, draconian measures were taken from 1957 onward to send back to the countryside the young hooligans who were disturbing the social order. Resettlement camps were opened and put under the charge of evangelical missions, protected, of course, by the Belgian army. The constitution of a lumpen proletariat is a phenomenon which obeys its own logic, and neither the brimming activity of the missionaries nor the decrees of the central government can check its growth. This lumpen proletariat is like a horde of rats. You may kick them and throw stones at them, but despite your efforts they'll go on gnawing at the roots of the tree. The shantytown sanctions the natives' biological decision to invade, at whatever cost and if necessary by the most cryptic methods, the enemy fortress. The lumpen proletariat, once it is constituted, 
brings all its forces to endanger the security of the towns, and is the sign of the irrevocable decay, the gangrene ever present at the heart of colonial domination. So the pimps, the hooligans, the unemployed, and the petty criminals, urged on from behind, throw themselves into the struggle for liberation like stout working men. These classless idlers will, by militant and decisive action, discover the path that leads to nationhood. They won't become reformed characters to please colonial society, fitting in with the morality of its rulers. Quite on the contrary, they take for granted the impossibility of their entering the city save by hand grenades and revolvers. These workless, less-than-men are rehabilitated in their own eyes and in the eyes of history. The prostitutes, too, and the maids who are paid two pounds a month, all the hopeless dregs of humanity, all who turn in circles between suicide and madness, will recover their balance, once more go forward, and march proudly in the great procession of the awakened nation. The Nationalist parties do not understand this new phenomenon, which precipitates their disintegration. The outbreak of the rebellion in the towns changes the nature of the struggle. Whereas before the colonialist troops were entirely concerned with the country districts, we now see them falling back in haste on the towns, in order to ensure the safety of the town population and their property. The forces of repression spread out. Danger is present everywhere. Now it's the very soil of the nation, the whole of the colony, which goes into a trance. The armed groups of peasants look on while the mailed fist loses its grip. The rising in the towns is like an unhoped-for gas balloon. The leaders of the rising, who see an ardent and enthusiastic people striking decisive blows at the colonialist machine, are strengthened in their mistrust of traditional policy. Every success confirms their hostility toward what, in future, they will describe as mouthwash, word-spinning, blather, and fruitless agitation. They feel a positive hatred for the politics of demagogy, and that is why in the beginning we observe a veritable triumph for the cult of spontaneity. The many peasant risings which have their roots in the country districts bear witness, wherever they occur, to the ubiquitous and usually solidly massed presence of the new nation. Every native who takes up arms is a part of the nation which, from henceforward, will spring to life. Such peasant revolts endanger the colonial regime. They mobilize its troops, making them spread out, and threaten at every turn to crush them. They hold one doctrine only, to act in such a way that the nation may exist there is no program, there are no speeches or resolutions, and no political trends. The problem is clear. The foreigners must go, so let us form a common front against the oppressor and let us strengthen our hands by armed combat. So long as the uncertainty of colonialism continues, the national cause goes on progressing and becomes the cause of each and all. The plans for liberation are sketched out, Already, they include the whole country. During this period, spontaneity is king and initiative is localized. On every bill, a government in miniature is formed and takes over power. Everywhere, in the valleys and in the forests, in the jungle and in the villages, we find a national authority. Each man or woman brings the nation to life by his or her action and is pledged to ensure its triumph in their locality. We are dealing with a strategy of immediacy, 
which is both radical and totalitarian. The aim and the program of each locally constructed group is local liberation. If the nation is everywhere, then she is here. One step further, and only here is she to be found. Tactics are mistaken for strategy. The art of politics is simply transformed into the art of war. The political militant is the rebel. To fight the war and to take part in politics, the two things become one and the same. This people that has lost its birthright, that is used to living in the narrow circle of feuds and rivalries, will now proceed in an atmosphere of solemnity to cleanse and purify the face of the nation as it appears in the various localities. In a veritable collective ecstasy, families which have always been traditional enemies decide to rub out old scores and to forgive and forget. There are numerous reconciliations. Long buried but unforgettable hatreds are brought to light once more, so that they may more surely be rooted out. The taking on of nationhood involves a growth of awareness. The national unity is first the unity of a group, the disappearance of old quarrels, and the final liquidation of unspoken grievances. At the same time, forgiveness and purification include those natives who by their activities and by their complicity with the occupier have dishonored their country. On the other hand, traitors and those who have sold out to the enemy will be judged and punished. In undertaking this onward march, the people legislates, finds itself, and wills itself to sovereignty. In every corner that is thus awakened from colonial slumber, life is lived at an impossibly high temperature. There is a permanent outpouring in all the villages of spectacular generosity, of disarming kindness and willingness, which cannot ever be doubted, to die for the cause. All this is evocative of a confraternity, a church, and a mystical body of belief at one and the same time. No native can remain unmoved by this new rhythm which leads the nation on. Messengers are dispatched to neighboring tribes. They constitute the first system of intercommunication in the rebellion, and bring movement and cadence to districts which are still motionless. Even tribes whose stubborn rivalry is well known now disarm with joyful tears and pledge help and succor to each other. Marching shoulder to shoulder in the armed struggle, these men join with those who yesterday were their enemies. The circle of the nation widens, and fresh ambushes to entrap the enemy hail the entry of new tribes upon the scene. Each village finds that it is itself both an absolute agent of revolution and also a link in the chain of action. Solidarity between tribes and between villages, national solidarity, is in the first place expressed by the increasing blows struck at the enemy. Every new group which is formed, each fresh salvo that bursts out, is an indication that each is on the enemy's track, and that each is prepared to meet him. The solidarity will be much more clearly shown during the second period, which is characterized by the putting into operation of the enemy offensive. The colonial forces, once the explosion has taken place, regroup and reorganize, inaugurating methods of warfare which correspond to the nature of the rising. This offensive will call in question the ideal, utopian atmosphere of the first period. The enemy attacks, and concentrates large forces on certain definite points. The local group is quickly overrun, all the more so because it tends to seek the forefront of the battle. 
The optimism which reigned in the first period makes the local group fearless, or rather, careless. It is persuaded that its own mountain peak is the nation, and because of this it refuses to abandon it, or to beat a retreat. But the losses are serious, and doubts spring up, and begin to weigh heavily upon the rebels. The group faces a local attack as if it were a decisive test. It behaves as if the fate on the whole country was literally at stake, here and now. But we should make it quite clear that this spontaneous impetuosity, which is determined to settle the fate of the colonial system immediately, is condemned, insofar as it is a doctrine of instantaneity, to self-repudiation. For the most everyday, practical realism takes the place of yesterday's effusion, and substitutes itself for the illusion of eternity. The hard lesson of facts, the bodies mown down by machine guns, these call forth a complete reinterpretation of events. The simple institution to survive engenders a less rigid, more mobile attitude. This modification in fighting technique characterized the first months of the War of Liberation of the People of Angola. We may remember that on March 15, 1961, a group of two or three thousand Angolan peasants threw themselves against the Portuguese positions. Men, women and children, armed and unarmed, afire with courage and enthusiasm, then flung themselves in successive waves of compact masses upon the districts where the settler, the soldier and the Portuguese flag held sway. Villages and airports were encircled and subjected to frequent attacks, but it must be added that thousands of Angolans were mown down by colonialist machine guns. It did not take long for the leaders of the Angolan Rising to realize that they must find some other methods if they really wanted to free their country. So during the last few months, footnote 1, the Angolan leader Holden Roberto has reorganized the National Angolan Army using the experience gained in various other wars of liberation, and employing guerrilla techniques. The fact is that in guerrilla warfare, the struggle no longer concerns the place where you are, but the place where you are going. Each fighter carries his warring country between his bare toes. The National Army of Liberation is not an army which engages once and for all with the enemy, it is rather an army which goes from village to village, falling back on the forests and dancing for joy when in the valley below there comes into view the white column of dust that the enemy columns kick up, the tribes go into action, and the various groups move about, changing their ground. The people of the north move toward the west, the people of the plain go up into the mountains. There is absolutely no strategically privileged position. The enemy thinks he is pursuing us, but we always manage to harry his rearguard, striking back at him at the very moment when he thinks he has annihilated us. From now on, it is we who pursue him. In spite of all his technical advantages and his superior artillery power, the enemy gives the impression that he is floundering and getting bogged down. And as for us, we sing. We go on singing. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be finishing off this chapter in the next episode. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network, 
You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about video games, books, movies, and anime. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.